They were doing some demo around the stage area, and during the demo, they found something in the walls. I'm not making this up. This is absolutely true. They found something in the walls. Now, that building was built in 1982. So for 34 years, these things were hidden in the walls, and we had no idea they were there. Now, you're not going to believe what it is, so let me just show you. Isn't that great? Now, for those of you who don't know me very well, if this is your first time, I am a huge Pepsi fan. My dad worked for Pepsi. He, he taught me drinking Coke is a sin. And I even, I even have a Pepsi machine in my office. I'm a huge Pepsi fan. Now, folks, you think I staged this. I did not. When they tore out the walls, whoever built that sanctuary liked Pepsi. And he didn't put it in just one wall. He put it in a second wall. And just to prove to you, this is not staged. Look at the next picture. When we picked up the bottle, you could see the circle where it had sat there for 34 years. I mean, it was like Christmas morning for me. It really, I couldn't wipe the smile off of my face. It makes me want to tear out some more walls to, see, to get some more bottles. Isn't it amazing? You can go to church for 34 years. Sunday after Sunday, and have no clue those bottles were there. I mean, I knew God called me to Mount Airy, but I didn't know why the draw was so strong. 34 years you go to church and not know that those things are hidden in the walls. That's easier to do than you think. Billy and Robin showed us you can go to church Sunday after Sunday for years. And no one knows what's hidden behind the walls of your life. I didn't know about Billy and Robin's story just a few years ago. I was shocked when I heard the story. I was shocked to, to hear what the struggle was and how God had changed him. You just never know what's behind the walls of someone's life. If there is something hidden in your life that the rest of us don't know about, I want to tell you something that's very, very important today. Many times, your problems are not your biggest problem. I want to make sure you hear that. Many times, your problems are not your biggest problem. The biggest obstacle to experiencing a makeover is often not our problems, it's our pride. See, we usually don't want to admit that we have struggles. We don't want to admit what our problems are. I mean, there's a reason we keep it hidden behind the walls. There's a reason we don't show it to anybody. Uh, we don't want to acknowledge what we struggle with. We don't want to acknowledge that we've got an issue. Uh, we want to appear bigger and better than we really are. We want people to have a good opinion of us. And so we sit silently and struggle with our sins week after week, with sins we can't conquer and problems we can't solve. That's why the biggest obstacle to experiencing a real change in your life is not your problems. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, God can handle your problems. But many times, He doesn't get a chance because of your pride. There's a story in the Bible that demonstrates how easy it is to miss what God can do in our lives because of the pride we struggle with. The, the story is found in 2 Kings 5. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Kings 5, 
And what I want to do is ask you to find that text, and, and I'm just going to tell you the story before I read it to you. This story in 2 Kings 5 is about a man named Naaman who had a lot going for him. He was commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is the current day state of, of uh, country of Syria. Now, as commander of the army, Naaman was the number two guy in the nation. This is a man of great power. This is a man of great prominence. This is a man of, of great position. He's the number two man in the nation. He was highly regarded by everyone around him, especially his king, the king that he served. He was highly regarded by the king and everyone around him. He was considered by everyone to be a great man. You know, when you hear somebody's name, sometimes out in the community, somebody will say, oh, do you know so-and-so? And your response sometimes is, tell you what, that's a great man. He's a great man. She's a great woman. So we, sometimes people have those kind of reputations. That was Naaman. But even with all of his prestige and his reputation and his power, Naaman was a doomed man because under his uniform was the body of a leper. Now, leprosy is a horrific skin disease that eats away at the tissues of your skin. It is an awful disease. In fact, I, I brought a picture to show you just what it kind of looks like. Would you look at this picture of a leprous hand? Isn't that awful? Isn't that tragic? I've got to be honest with you. When I was looking at pictures to try to find one appropriate to show you, this was the best one I could find. The other ones literally, lit, I'm not exaggerating, the other ones literally almost made me sick. It was an awful disease. Naaman, under his uniform, had kept hidden from most people the fact that he was a leper. Now, you need to know that in Naaman's day, there was no cure for leprosy. In the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, there was no cure for leprosy. And throughout history, people who were afflicted by, les by leprosy were isolated from their community. They were ostracized and isolated even from their families because leprosy was spread by touch, or it is spread by touch. And so if, if you had leprosy, you had to be removed from the community. You had to be removed from even your family. And, and that's why even in the New Testament, when, when someone was approaching a leper, they would have to cry out, Leper! Leper! That was Naaman. And now perhaps his leprosy had just gotten started. Perhaps it had not spread yet because he was not yet ostracized from his community. He was still serving his king. But he knew it was there. His king knew it was there. You can imagine how it must have worried him during that time. There was no cure for leprosy. In fact, I found something very interesting. It, as I did a little research on leprosy, I found out really there was no cure for leprosy until 1981. Shocked me to find that out. I assumed that hundreds of years ago they came up with a cure for leprosy. It was not until 1981 that they actually developed a cure for leprosy. Now, in the 1940s, they developed a drug that would treat leprosy, that would just arrest the disease, just stop the disease, but it didn't cure it. And you had to stay on that medicine for the rest of your life. But again, it didn't cure you, it just arrested the disease. It was in the 1940s. In the 1960s, they developed two more medications, and again, all they would do was arrest the disease, slow it down, stop it, but not cure it. But in 1981, they, they discovered that if they mixed all three of those medicines together, that the combination of those medicines would actually cure the leprosy 
if you stayed on that medication for 12 months. So it was not until 1981, which fascinates me with all of our medical advances, it was not until 1981 that leprosy actually had a cure. And that's what makes this next verse so amazing, or the next part of this story. One day, there was a slave girl in Naaman's house, and one day she happened to mention to Naaman's wife, apparently she had seen the leprosy on Naaman. One day, this slave girl said to Naaman's wife, I wish my master would go to Samaria. There's a prophet there who can, and she used this word, there's a prophet there who can cure him. Now that got the attention of the wife. She immediately went and told Naaman, and he immediately went and told his king, and the king immediately said, by all means, go. Because this is not someone who could just make me feel better. This is not someone who would just give me some cream to rub on it. This supposedly is someone who can cure me. And the king said, by all means, go. And I imagine that everybody was excited, just like you would be. If you had an incurable disease and somebody told you, if you can go to Houston, there's somebody there who can cure you. So Naaman left Damascus. He went down to Samaria. And it's about a 120-mile journey. But he went on that road, that difficult road for 120 miles, looking for a miracle, looking for a cure. Now, it's interesting what he took with him. Naaman took a lot of money with him. He, he apparently was willing to pay whatever the price of this miracle was going to cost him. That's how desperate he was to get this cure. Taking everything, perhaps, that he had. And the reason I say that, look, let's read the text now. Chapter 5 in 2 Kings, verse 5. Here's what it says. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left, taking with him... Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Apparently, he thought it might take a while. You didn't usually have lots of different changes of clothes. He took ten sets of clothes with him, and he took a lot of money with him. Now, I want you to talk to me. Up in the balcony down here on the lower floor, I want you to talk to me today. How many talents of silver did he take? I want to make sure you're listening. How many talents of silver did he take? Ten. Now, to help you understand how much money that was... In another part of First Kings, I think it's First Kings sixteen twenty four. Don't turn there, but in First Kings sixteen twenty four, there was a man who bought an entire hillside upon which the city of Samaria was going to be built. So when he purchased this this great big hill upon which the entire city of Samaria would be built, guess how much he paid for that entire hillside? He paid two talents of silver to buy enough land to build an entire city. Two talents of silver. It was a lot of money. Two talents of silver was a lot of money. Naaman took ten talents of silver. I don't know how much that is in today's value, how much money that would be, but scholars say as far as weight, ten talents of silver was about 750 pounds of silver. It's a lot of money, isn't it? 750 pounds of, of silver. Now, he also took some gold. How much gold did he take? Talk to me. 6,000 shekels of gold, which translates to about 150 pounds of gold. Now, my question is, where did he get that kind of money? I know he's second in command in the nation. I know he's a man of prominence and power. I don't, maybe the king gave him a loan. Maybe the king gave it to him. Or maybe, just maybe, in my estimation, 
Maybe he drained his bank account. Maybe he took everything that he had with him. Because he was so desperate for a cure that he'd give everything he had for that. Here's the point. Why would he travel 120 miles? You would too if you could find a cure. Why would he carry with him and be willing to spend 900 pounds of gold and silver? You would too if you could get a cure. You see, how much is a cure worth? Whatever you have to pay. Now, I want you to imagine his anticipation. As he's traveling that 120 miles from Damascus down to Samaria... That 120 miles, during that time, he probably played out in his mind what it was going to be like when he meets the prophet. He probably played out in his mind how it was going to go and what the prophet would do. And he would announce this great announcement and, and he would touch him and, and there would be this great ceremony and, and he would be healed in his mind. I imagine he, he replayed it over and over and over what it was going to be like to be cured, to be healed. And so we read in verse 9, So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but again, this is just my imagination, but I think it perhaps is accurate. <clears throat> in my mind, Naaman probably pulled up with his big procession of horses and chariots, and once the dust settled, it was a lot of noise when horses and chariots pull up outside your house, and once the dust settled, I imagine he stood there with a big smile on his face, waiting he finally has arrived. 120 miles, he's finally here. And he's standing there with great anticipation as the dust settles and this big smile on his face. And he waits. And he waits. And finally, he gets down out of his chariot. And he, the Bible says he stands at the doorway of the, of the prophet's house. And he waits. And he waits. And again, I don't know if this happened, but perhaps he looked over at the other guy near him, one of his servants, and said, have we got the right house? And this is where the story takes an unexpected turn. Look at the text with me, beginning in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, to Naaman, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Apparently, Elisha knew that Naaman had to be humbled before he could be healed. So he didn't even go outside. He didn't even go meet him. It'd kind of be like the vice president coming to your house with this long line of black escalades, and he's in one of them. And they all pull up, and he waits in the, in the escalade, and you never come out. And eventually, he gets out, and he goes to the door, but you don't come to the door. You send your son to the door to give him a message. That's what happened in this, in this situation. He sent a servant out to tell him to go dip down in the Jordan River, which, by the way, was about 32 miles down the road. You're not going to be healed right here. You're not going to be healed right now. The servant said, you need to go back down the road about 32 miles. Hang a right. You'll come to the Jordan River. And when you find the muddy waters of the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times, and then... You'll be cured. I don't know what I would have done. I don't, I, if, if I had been Naaman, 
coming to that place with such anticipation, coming to that place with all of my money, coming to that place with the authority of the king, I don't know how I would have responded. But we do know how Naaman responded. Because the Bible tells us in verse 11 how he responded. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Wave his hand over the spot. Apparently, as I said earlier, apparently it hadn't spread a lot. There was a spot. But he said, listen, I've been playing this out in my mind. That whole 120-mile journey down here, I've got it figured out how it was going to happen. I thought he would come out. I thought there'd be a procession. I thought there'd be a ceremony. I thought it would be a big deal. And when it didn't happen that way, verse 11 is almost unbelievable because it says in verse 11, Naaman went away angry. Another translation says, he turned and went off in a rage. Ladies and gentlemen, that verse scares me. And I hope it scares you too. Naaman was convinced he deserved better. He he was convinced he deserved better treatment from the prophet. He had come with the blessings of the king. He had come with money in his pocket. He, He had come with his reputation and his horses and his chariots. And when he didn't get the treatment he thought he deserved, the Bible says he turned and went off in a rage. You see... Naaman's biggest obstacle to experiencing a makeover was not the leprosy. It was his pride. Naaman's biggest problem was not the leprosy. His biggest problem was his pride. You know, pride is such a subtle thing, we usually don't even recognize it when it's in our lives. We have a hard time seeing pride in us. The word pride literally means to think too highly of yourself. Now think through this with me. That's why it's so hard to discern. You think that the opinion of yourself, because you think too highly of yourself, you think that the opinion that you have of yourself is justified. right? I mean, do you remember this song? I was trying to think who sang it. I think it was Mac Davis. Uh, You young folks aren't going to know this one, but but some of you are going to know. Don't start singing it. You know what I'm going to say already, don't you? Some of you. Don't start singing it. But, but you know the song, and I think it was Mac Davis. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. And I'm going to stop the song right there. But you know what I'm talking about. You see, that's the way pride works. When you have a high opinion, a high opinion of yourself, you think it's justified and you don't think it's odd. The person who thinks too highly of themselves are literally unaware that they're thinking too highly of themselves because they think their opinion of themselves is justified. Last weekend, we were at the uh, White Oak Conference Center for the men's retreat. I had a great time. I had 45 or so men there and had a great time. And we were sitting at lunch in one of those sessions. And as we're sitting at lunch, one of the guys, I'm going to call his name, but one of the guys, it happens to all of us, one of the guys was eating, and I don't remember what he was eating. It might have been coleslaw or something. But anyway, he had a piece of something white right here on his chin. Now, I'm sitting at the table with him, and I see this, and I'm thinking, should I tell him? Should I mention it to him? And I debated, and I, I, he just kept talking and talking, and I'm looking, and he's talking, and I'm looking at what's on his, you know? And, and then 
I, I, I thought, I'm just not going to tell him. But he just kept talking, and he didn't know it was there. Finally, one of the other guys at the table told him, hey, you need to wipe your chin. You got something on your chin about right there. And, and he wiped it off. We could see it, but he couldn't. And that's the way pride is. We can't see it in ourselves, but everybody else can. We can't see that the problem we have with pride, but everybody else sitting at your table can. Now, thankfully, Naaman had some friends who pointed out his problem, just like my friend pointed out to this guy his problem. There was, he had some friends around him who pointed out his problem, and the thing that they pointed to was not his leprosy. Look in verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, Now remember, he's gone off in a rage. He's left in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? Here's the way it played out. Naaman left. He left the prophet there. He, he left that area. He took off. And he's mad. He's in a rage. I don't know how far he got down the road before his, some of his servants called up to him. And they said, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait. Think about this. He just told you how you could be cured. He just told you how you can get what you need. You don't have to be a leper the rest of your He just told you how you can be cured. Why are you running away angry? I mean, if he had told you to do something great, would you have done it? If he had told you to go climb this high mountain, would you have done that to be cured? Well, sure I would. Well, why not go down to the muddy waters of the river and dip seven times like he said? Now, I don't know how much time passed between verse 13 and verse 14, but I have the idea there was a gap there. I have the idea that there was some time as, as Naaman wrestled with what he was going to do. Verse 14, it says, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, remember now, when he went down to the Jordan River, it wasn't next door. When he went down to the Jordan River, it was 32 miles away, roughly. So he had some time to think about it. He had some time to consider what he had done, and he had some time to consider his leprosy and his anger and his pride. He had some time to think it all through. And don't miss this. When he stepped down out of his chariot or stepped off of his horse, whatever it was, and he stepped down into the river, he was a broken man. Humility is always the first step towards real change. The first step to lasting makeover, to real change in your life, is always a step of humility. It's probably the hardest step of all, but it is the first step. And when Naaman got down off that horse and he went down into the muddy waters of the Jordan and he dipped himself seven times, he was a broken man. But listen to this. His brokenness led to his blessing. Don't miss that. His brokenness is what led to his blessing. 
And you and I will never experience God's power in a, in a makeover in our lives until we meet God in our brokenness. You can't meet God's power, God in His power, until you meet God in your brokenness. And when, when we come to God in humility, and we, when we come to God openly and honestly, and we're broken before Him, when we come to God and finally do that one thing He's told us to do, that is when we position ourselves to experience God's power. That is when we position ourselves for the cure we so desperately need. Someone said humility bends stiff knees and softens hard hearts. So what is that one thing for you? What is that one thing God has told you to do that has made you angry? What's that one thing God has told you that you need to do if you're ever going to be cured, if you're ever going to be free, if you're ever going to be well? What's that one thing God told you to do that you haven't done yet? Naaman, why haven't you dipped yourself yet in the waters of the Jordan? If God asks you to do some strange thing, some great thing, to be free, to be cured, to be well, if God asks you to do something grand, would you do it in order to be free? Then why not do the simple thing that God has placed before you? Why not in brokenness and in humility... Do what God says. You see, the single greatest hindrance to experiencing God in a fresh way is our unwillingness to humble ourselves and obey Him. We'd rather, have it keep, we'd rather keep hiding it behind the wall. That way no one knows, no one sees, no one suspects. But the problem with that is this. You're still a leper. You still have that disease of sin. You still have that, that area of your life that you will struggle with for the rest of your life. I mean, are you really going to let pride keep you from the cure that God makes available? You'll never feel the impact of God's power in your life until you feel the impact of brokenness. That doesn't mean that you have to be gloomy. That doesn't mean that you have to cry a lot of tears, though there may be emotion attached to it. Brokenness is not an emotion. Brokenness is a conscious choice. It's an act of the will to get off of your high horse and go down into the muddy waters of the Jordan and do what God says. That's brokenness. It's a conscious choice. It's an act of the will. It's an unconditional, absolute surrender to that one thing God's put His finger on and said, I told you, this is what you need to do to be free. See, the key to a makeover is not just to be broken once. The key to a makeover is to live a broken life. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Live in such a way that you stop thinking so highly of yourself. Live in such a way that you are aware of the power of sin in your life. And live in such a way that you are constantly, day by day, willing to do that thing God tells you to do. That's living a broken life. 
James 4, verse 6 tells us this. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. I love what D.L. Moody also said. This. He said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Isn't that good? And today as you leave in a few minutes, I wonder how you're going to go away. God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Naaman, go down into the muddy waters of the Jordan and do that one thing God's told you to do. Not because you want to do it. Not because your pastor's pushing you to do it. Not because your wife or your husband or your mom or your dad expects you to do it. But because you want to be healed. You want to be free. To, to such a degree, you are willing to humble yourself before a holy God. I want you to bow your head with me, please. Every head bowed. What's that one thing you need to do? That you've been refusing to do. That one thing that's been holding you back. That one thing that in anger. And with your pride. You've refused to do. That one thing may be to go to somebody and make reconciliation. And in your anger and in your pride. You've refused to do it. That one thing may be to admit to someone close by. You have an addiction. You can't break it. That one thing, it might be to follow God in a way that He's opened a door for you and, and in anger and in resentment, you haven't yet been willing to obey God. I, I don't know what the one thing is for you. But listen to these scriptures from the Lord. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord. He'll lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. He may not lift you up immediately. The problem may not be resolved immediately. It says, but He will lift you up in due time. Proverbs eighteen twelve says, Before His downfall a man's heart is proud, but, but humility comes before our honor. Just listen to this last verse from the story of Naaman, verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself into Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored. And he became clean like that of a young boy. And Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. And he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. What's the one thing that you need to do? That your pride has kept you from doing. During this time of invitation, we're going to ask you to come. Perhaps down to this altar and, and, and I'll be here to pray with you. Maybe you say, Pastor, I've got this struggle. I've got this issue. And I've got this, whatever it might be. I've got this addiction. I've got this problem. And, and, and Pastor, I, I, this is my one thing. I'm confessing it. Not because you're my priest. I'm confessing it to God. This is my one thing. Or maybe you don't need to talk to me at all. Maybe you just come and get on this altar and say, God, I'm ready to do that one thing. 
Because I'm tired of being a leper. And I have walked away from the cure so many times. My pride has kept me from doing this. My anger has kept me from doing this. But today, this is my one thing. And God, I lay it out before you. I confess it. I forsake it. Or maybe you don't need to come to me at all. Maybe you need to go to someone in this building. I, I don't know what it is. God knows. What's that one thing you need to do? Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you for teaching us today that sometimes our problems are not our biggest problem. Thank you for peeling back the layers and helping us to see a deeper issue, a deeper problem. Forgive us, Lord, when we thought we could handle it, when we thought we could conquer it, when we thought we could make ourselves well. Help us to acknowledge today that you will not send us away empty if we're willing to confess to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.